Welcome to the DTB podcast for April 2023, volume 61, number four. Uh, my name is David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Uh, once again, thank you for joining us for this podcast. And this month we will be talking about the contents of April's DTB. Uh, but I thought we'd start this podcast with a listener's letter. Well, well, it was actually an email, but I couldn't alliterate email. So it's a listener's letter which was prompted by the discussion that you and I had last month, James, on Jovellus, the new combined oral contraceptive. Um, and there were a couple of points made in the email that I thought we should address before we get onto the main body of our podcast. Okay, so the first one relates to the four-day pill-free interval. And I think the inference was that this was an unusual regimen for combined hormonal contraceptives, but it is included in the Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Healthcare as an alternative to the seven-day pill-free interval. Um, what are your thoughts, James? Yes, well, thank you, Oliver, for emailing us, because I think he did raise some important points, and that is, he's absolutely right. The Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Health has suggested that it's entirely reasonable to have tailored oral contraceptive regimes. And that may be that you go without any gap at all, and therefore you just take your pill continually, or you can obviously have a shorter gap than the week. And there are some obviously physiological benefits from having a shorter gap. Actually, it's far less likely that you'll ovulate. Um, so I get all that. But I think my point I was making is that given that all the first line pills have a seven day gap or as I say, that well, they're designed to have a seven-day gap. My point, though, is that when you start introducing sugar pills, which is what Dravelis does, it has four placebo pills at the end of the pack, it just adds a certain amount of complexity to missing pills, rules, and what you want to do if you do want to tailor the regimen when you take Dravelis in a different way. So that was my point. The other thing I think was really interesting, though, and it got us, didn't it, sort of searching the, the literature, was I was a bit... Um, disparaging of drospirinone, which is the progesterone that this contraceptive has, because I was mentioning the increased thrombotic effect it has compared to a lot of the other progesterones used in oral contraceptives. And Oliver um, quite rightly pointed out that, that this uh, progesterone is meant to have anti-androgenic and anti-mineral corticoid actions. And that did get us looking to see if we could find some evidence for that. And I think, David, you were the one that found the Cochrane Review in 2012, which had looked at about 156 randomised control trials and noted that there did seem to be some benefit in premenstrual dysphoric disorder, as they called it. But there was a big placebo effect and they wondered actually whether there was any clinical benefit whilst there was some statistical benefit. So always good to get uh, feedback from what we say in these podcasts and um, please keep it coming. And just to re-emphasize that last point, I mean, when we looked at the Cochrane Review, it was only of studies that involved that progestogen. So there was no evidence comparing it with other um, formulations. So yes, there's something that says that it may have a measured effect on various symptoms, but we don't know how it compares with others. And as you say, the huge placebo effect. And the other thing I found, I just went back to the FSRH guidance, because they were talking about acne. And it's back to this question, isn't it? Is it a marketing myth that th this is a much better product for things like acne? Or is there evidence to support it? 
but the FSSRH guidance just says, with regard to management of acne, there is no good evidence for any differential effectiveness of CHC containing different progestogens. So uh, interesting point, but it doesn't seem that we could find any evidence to back it up. No, it doesn't stand up to DTB rigor. I thought I'd like to put that that way. But, you know, and this is the problem we have, isn't it? So much is out there, which, you know, we're taught perhaps. And sometimes there are all these theoretical possibilities, but actually the evidence doesn't stack it up. So, yeah, as I say, um, do take us to task for anything we say, either on this podcast or in our articles, because I think it always keeps you just testing and making sure that you are keeping things straight and and keeping it correct. And good to be not just talking into the empty ether and that people are keeping (laughs) tabs on us. So, okay, thank you. Let's move on to April's issue. Uh, I thought we should cover the editorial and the commentary article together because they're related to the same topic. Um, And what is that topic, James? And what, what, what do they say? So this is the big issue with nighttime uh, medication. In 2019, there was a big study, the Hygia chronotherapy trial, which was wildly trailed by the medical and and mainstream media. This study seemed to demonstrate that taking your antihypertensives at bedtime compared with when you get up in the morning halved the cardiovascular risk you might have and related deaths and even seemed to reduce non-cardiovascular deaths. And I say it hit the headlines big time and uh, there was a lot of interest in it. And I have to say that I changed my uh, management of patients as a result of this trial. And even in 2022, I was looking at BJGP was publishing letters suggesting that this was the thing to do, a beneficial thing to do. And if you Google articles for or Hygia chronotherapy trial, you know, the top three Google articles are still suggesting that it's the right thing to do. And what Tech has done in his editorial and also in reviewing a new study called the Time Study actually demonstrate that there's more to this is far more complex and actually what we thought was beneficial probably isn't so the time study which is the newer one that he looks at in more detail in the commentary article what was what was the kind of key messages from that one then so the time study interesting 21,000 odd people this was like a sort of virtual study because People did it all from their homes, if you like. Uh, They signed up to be part of the study. And the results of the study are all down to reported um, symptoms and problems that the patients actually reported into the study, together with background data from general practitioners and hospitals. But interesting study because they randomised people to either take their medicine in the morning between 6 and 10 or in the evening between 8 and 12 uh, midnight. And this study was started before the um, previous study, the Hygia chronotherapy study. So it was, they were looking for people in 2014 to 2017. So this predates that. So people sort of weren't aware of what was going on. And this study seemed to show there really is no difference between the people who take medication in the morning and those that take it in the evening. But there are some interesting elements to that, I have to say. And there were some caveats, I think, that Tech highlights and the authors highlighted around the findings of, of the time study. I mean, partly it was open label, wasn't it? So people knew, or well, people obviously knew what they were, were doing because there was no placebo um, tablets to take at the opposite end of the day. Um, and, and wasn't there quite a bit of non-adherence to the allocated groups? 
Well, I think that that's that's right, and of course, it, the median follow up was five years. So actually, of course, the the Hydra study came out whilst the study was going on, and there was significant uh, non adherence. So I think in total, it was about thirty one percent of participants didn't adhere to it, and that was even higher in the nocturnal group compared to the morning group. And that was one of the things that I think I found interesting about this study was that it actually gave us a little bit of insight into how people take medication. And there's no doubt about it, and I'm sure this has been studied and proven, that taking medication in the morning always seems to have better compliance than taking medication in the evening. Um, and I think that has huge issues for us when it comes to things like statins, because I think as a general rule, any medication you take at night, unless it's a sleeping pill, you know, the, the compliance is not as good as if you take it in the morning. I don't know why that is. It's probably just because mornings are more normal. Your habits are perhaps more common in the morning. For whatever reason, there's that element. The other thing that I thought was interesting about the time study and, and perhaps one of its weaknesses is that one of the background issues towards or, or why we thought, or why we think, or, or why it was felt that nighttime medication would be a better idea, is that there is some evidence that non-dippers, people whose blood pressure stays high at night, are more at risk of the complications of hypertension. Dipping at night, or not dipping at night, should I say, is more common in certain ethnic groups, particularly um, black and people of African origin. And this study, the time study, really didn't have anyone, it was 91% white and only about half a percent uh, black or African origin. So, you know, there is a there is still a caveat here, but I think what this study showed was that if like an equality of whether you take the medication in the morning or night. There were some other things that were really interesting. 6% of each group had a fracture. And I was left thinking, crikey, that seems really high to me. Um, this was a five-year study. So, do 6% of my population fracture a bone every five years? I don't know. Or 6% seems... of your hypertension population. Good point. Good point. Well done. Yes. Um, but, you know, it just seemed, seemed, I don't know, it seemed quite high to me. I'm, I'm going to have to go and look at that um, and see whether there was something else. And the other interesting about the time study, these patients had to actually blooming well control blood pressure. I mean, the mean blood pressure started the it was 135 over 79, and they were only on um, an average of 1.5 antihypertensive medications. So that's the other thing about this, that I do wonder whether it was a select group. So all really interesting stuff. And I think there's probably more, there's always more to be said about concordance and timing of medication. And, you know, someone once said, the only drug that really ever works is the one that people take. So I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff behind the scenes in this time study, which is worth a look at. And Tech does a really nice commentary on it in the DTB this month, which is well worth a read. But overall, the message seemed to be that, that despite the hype of the Hygieia study, this is now back to, well, calm down, because actually there doesn't seem to be any difference between the two groups. So tailor your recommendation to what suits the patient best. Is that a fair Yeah, summary? and I think that's exactly right. It works both ways. You know, there are some times when actually, you know, perhaps a relative um, or a carer comes in to see someone um, only in the evening and actually moving all their medication to taking them at night when a relative is, is visiting perhaps a frail elderly patient makes sense. And, and this study demonstrates that you're not missing out by doing that. You're not going to end up 
um, in any sort of problem by by moving all the medication to the night. But you're not going to get the sort of benefit perhaps that the um, high grade study suggested you would in 2019. And the other interesting point that Tech brings out in his editorial, well, for me, is that you know, this this is where the media hype has a kind of key influence, doesn't it? Because it was, as you say, trailed in lots of the media as being a major advance that we should all think about. You said that you began to change your practice on the basis of it. But here we are a few years later, almost thinking the opposite, not necessarily the opposite, but actually saying that perceived advantage, it probably isn't there. But who's going to go and correct that message that the media um, yeah. splashed around? Who's going to correct those Google headlines? That, that it, exactly right. And and I think he finishes on exactly the right note. He says, you know, new research findings, however promising and exciting, do not equate to advances in clinical practice, but rather should be subjected to ongoing critical appraisal and vigilance. And I think that's the bottom line to this all. Which is a non-exciting, but 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 strong message that you know we should. David, we don't we don't do exciting. Okay, okay, okay. I'm, I'm with you there. Right. Okay. Yes, but I take your point. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, let's just move now to a um, a DTP Select article this month that looked at uh, licensing decisions and health technology assessments across different countries. Uh, so what did the authors look at and what did they find? Yeah, so this was a, a JAMA study that looked at FDA approved drugs uh, between, I think, 2017 and, and 2020 and looked at these and, and sort of looked at what happened to these drugs also in other parts of the world, such as the Australia, Canada and the UK. Um, and what they picked out was that uh, 42 medicines licensed by the FDA were not approved by health technology assessments um, in Australia, Canada, or UK. So, about a quarter of of them, them, you know, weren't approved elsewhere in the world. So, although some were licensed by the other regulators, they then when they came to health technology assessment, they weren't approved for for use in that country or or area. Is that right? That's right. And if you actually look at the, I think 105 of the medicines had been approved and were assessed by at least one of the three health technology assessment bodies. So that was, there's, I'll say, Australia, Canada, or in the UK, NICE. Actually, you know, only 42 were were sort of, if you like, passed. So it, it's actually half of the number that were actually assessed. And I think the thing to remember is that the FDA doesn't look at cost effectiveness of new drugs that's not their thing whereas obviously these health technology assessment bodies do look at whether there's actual clinical benefit and whether it's cost effective and i suppose that for me that was the issue i mean i know that our licensing bodies don't look at so ema and mhra don't look at uh, cost effectiveness but equally the states don't seem to have an equivalent to nice not at national level anyway they don't have a nice or a uh, whatever the Australian um, body or the Canadian body is called, they don't have the equivalent of that to make those cost effectiveness d- decisions. So of the, because it's 42 rejected by at least one of the other organisations, yep. who rejected the most and who rejected the least? Well, that's the interesting thing because NICE actually, I think, rejected the least. They only rejected five. But the difference with NICE, which was fascinating, is that they, of course, have this ability to approve them subject to the medicine being supplied under a commercial agreement. So this is now increasingly the way things occur in the UK. So 
that they might decide this is this this drug is not cost effective but actually if we have a quiet word you know behind uh, closed doors and and actually secretly agree a price we can then actually allow this to to be used for a certain number of time and then the idea is that during that time real world data or perhaps a, a trial will be completed and from the evidence that that brings you'll be able to determine then whether it comes out of our commercial agreement and actually is used freely in the UK. So UK is a bit different from the others um, and seems to approve more at the moment for sure. And that was the one thing I was left wanting to know a bit more about, and I don't think the, the paper answered that, which was the reasons for the rejections in the other areas, so Australia and Canada, how did they differ from the decisions NICE made? And as you say, was it the NICE negotiation behind the scenes around drug prices that didn't happen in the other areas? So I just wanted to, to dig into it a bit more, but I don't think that, that information just wasn't available. No, no. Okay, thank you very much. And let's just move to our final article this month, which is another one of our prescribing for pregnancy series. Um, do you want to say a bit more about this one? Yeah, just a really very nice sort of broad uh, brush uh, article on pregnancy and dermatology uh, by the by the Chelsea and Westminster team who've produced some fabulous articles for us. And actually, if someone just wants a quick update on modern management of, of skin conditions, uh, then actually it's it's a really good article just for that. It goes through the classic um, diseases, the impact certain drugs have uh, and the issues around pregnancy. And there's quite a lot of stuff that the generalist needs to remember. There's obviously the teratogenic potential of a number of drugs used in uh, dermatology, such as all retinoids, mycophenolate, methotrexate. There's issues around um, the biologics, which although because they're IgG structured, they don't cross the placenta, um, there's issues around live vaccines in the first six months for babies whose mothers have been on biologics. And, you know, are you aware of that? There's the issue about UVB being second line therapy for psoriasis and the issue about those women needing to be on a high dose of folate. So there's lots of little things there which um, just are really important just to be aware of. So lovely article, really clear, really concise. Um, and covers dermatology in about two and a half thousand words. And as we've seen throughout this whole series of, of articles that Joanna Gerling has coordinated, it's back to this key message of the best results are if you can plan your pregnancy and your disease control and can give it some thought before actually pregnancy occurs so that you can get people onto the safest drugs at the best dose and get the best control of their condition, get it all done before they become pregnant, and then your outcomes are likely to be much, much better. Absolutely. I mean, planning, planning, planning has sort of been the underpinning of a lot of these articles. And of course, with the retinoids, there's big issues about not getting pregnant for at least a month after stopping some of them. And in fact, acetretin, it's three years you need to avoid getting pregnant after stopping it. Um, now, that's not a drug that I've seen used, you know, my experience, but it's out there. There are a lot of drugs here. Mycophenolate, you should avoid getting pregnant for at least six weeks after stopping it. There's an issue perhaps with um, men taking methotrexate. Should they stop during the conception? You know, need, that needs to be discussed because there's sort of issues around what dose people are taking. So all kinds of little nuances, which, as you say, the most important thing really is if you have any woman who's of childbearing age who's taking 
any sort of of these more um, disease modifying drugs of any sort, you should be sort of contemplating, am I, you know, are we thinking about pregnancy? Do we know what the planning is or what the plan might be? And are we ready for it? And have we got things in place? Okay, that's great. I will, will, will certainly, once this is published and available online, we'll add it to our uh, dedicated web page on our site, which has got all the articles um, in this whole whole series. So it'd be, I think it be, might be number 10 um, in the series. So it's a, a good resource to go to, and we'll flag that up in um, the notes that accompany this podcast. So you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtp.bmj.com. And all our previous podcasts are also available on the website. Just click the podcast button at the top of the homepage. Uh, thank you for the comments on our content and podcasts. It's always great to have them. If you want to let us know what you think, email us dtb at bmj.com. And if you want to get involved with DTB, please let us know. Use the same address, dtb at bmj.com. So if you want to be a peer reviewer, even help us write articles or suggest topics, just email us and we'll be great to hear from you. So many thanks for listening and we hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for the May 2023 podcast.